The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Housing. It's the national obsession and I'm sure this summer, like everyone else, you'll be talking at barbecues and eventually the conversation will come round to, so what's happening with your house prices slash rents? In fact, it's the main topic of concern for New Zealanders. An Ipsos survey this year showed that housing was the number one concern for voters, more than COVID, more than climate change, more even than the economy. Housing dominates the conversation like it never has before after house prices rose 41% since COVID and now the government is scrambling to try and stop it from rising anymore. They don't want to let it go down, but they certainly want to stop it from rising anymore. We talk this week on When the Facts Change, a special summer edition, with Mark Todd, who is the founder and CEO of Ockham which is an Auckland-based group producing a huge number of apartments around Auckland. And Mark's a really thoughtful person who's very connected to what's happening in the housing sector in Auckland, all the dramas around the medium-density residential standards, all the issues around uh, changes in tax rules, the problems of building materials and getting staff because 2021 has been a record year for building consents. But even then, it wasn't enough to stop another 25 to 30% of house price rises in 2021. With more to come, Treasury, uh, the Reserve Bank, and most economists still see another 4 or 5% rise before some sort of slowdown early next year. Perhaps a 4 or 5% fall, say some economists. We'll talk to Mark Todd about what he's seeing in the market, and then more broadly about this crisis we have in housing, an affordability crisis, a climate crisis, which can only really be dealt with by re-engineering our cities to build lots of different types of houses, much closer to work and play and transport, and of course changing the way we get around. It is the existential issue of our age. Housing, right up there with climate change. That's what we're about this week on When the Facts Change. I talked to Mark Todd from Ockham Property. Just after the break. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment, and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side, with our surging migration, boosting labour supply and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows, and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. 
Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Well, kia ora and welcome to Mark Todd from Ockham, who is a friend of the show. We had a fantastic conversation earlier this year, Mark, which actually took us into some really fascinating areas that I wasn't expecting and that our audience really appreciated. So thank you very much for coming on at the end of the year to talk about this this major issue for New Zealand, not just today, but into the future housing. Why is it we just can't seem to get the right type of affordable housing in the right place. Thank you for, for coming in here. But firstly, could you just give us an update on how many houses you've built? You know, anyone who builds houses in New Zealand should be given a knighthood. But anyway, tell us about the number of houses you've built and where they are and that sort of thing. Oh, we've, we've built around 800 houses or apartments to date in Bernard and um, got five major sites running concurrently at the moment. Actually, we've just started uh, two, two further projects, one of 40 units and um, one of 100 just in the last couple of months. So, yeah, we've got another 750 or so funded and in delivery over the next two and a half years and a few other large projects and pre-planning as well. So we've got 85 staff and we're doing our best. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about the um, stresses and strains over the last year. It's been a record year for housing consents and there's a lot of talk about building materials prices rising and the cost of uh, labour rising as well, difficulty finding skilled people. What, what's been your experience? Our oh, costs are definitely rising across the board. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, I think there's a combination. There is a shortage of, well, labour in general from, from guys to pick up the broom, sweep up from, you know, labourers all the way through to site managers, senior site managers and project managers. There's a shortage of skilled people across the board, tradesmen. And, of course, a lot of... Um, Key trades, the labour supply comes directly from overseas. Things like brick laying, jib fixing, concrete works, steel fixing, tiling, even painting, you know. So a lot of these trades aren't trained locally. And, you know, that's the whole issue itself. But currently that's, that's how industry runs with foreign labour. And there hasn't been any for a couple of years. And as you all know, the number of houses being built are an all-time, well, highest they've been for 40 years. So there's definitely a shortage of everything. Yeah, it's sort of amazing, really, that 47,000 housing consents were issued and houses are being built. Well, how do we do it, given that we didn't have all the migrant labour coming in? There are these shortages. There was a big chunks of the year when people weren't able to get onto sites. You know, it's, it's sort of amazing <laughs> that so much is being done. Yeah, it's been a bit stressful from time to time. I think that's one of the benefits of a, a free market or, you know, a Western capitalist kind of system that does push and pull and stretch to accommodate tension. So 
you know, I'm always surprised that I get up every morning and our, you know, my power turns on, there's fresh water running out of the pipes and, you know, the traffic lights are going and teachers turn up to work and, you know, the sewer's going and it's a mystery to me that the, literally the millions and millions of parts, pieces, people that, that make up a modern economy that it functions. But, yeah, it is quite resilient. But I, I think what has happened is cost. I know for ourselves, cost for mid-rise concrete apartments, it's up. 18% year on year. I mean, that that's just, you know, a phenomenal rise. And, you know, lucky it is. Lucky house prices have, have risen quite a bit too, you know. Otherwise, you know, being a, a large-scale developer is a bit scary when costs are rising like that, you know. It's it's almost criminal the profits you have to show to get funding. You know, I'm not sure if it's widely known, but, you know, for a large-scale apartment project, you have to make 25% margin on cost or you won't get funding. Yeah, and that funding is an interesting area because the banks have been very reluctant to put large amounts of funding into developments. And particularly at the end of this year, they've tightened up in various ways. What's it looking like at the moment for developers who do want to get funding for these more complex projects, you know, the medium density, high density apartments, that sort of thing? Yeah, banks are definitely more risk averse than I've seen them in seven or eight years or even longer. It's... um, Definitely that message is coming through from, from our bankers. Um, you know, we're, we're very well funded, one of our strengths, but I know across the industry, even for individuals getting funding. You know, if you're on a salary and you could borrow X up until recently and now you might only be borrowed, you know, 0.5 of X with, you know, the interest rate stress testing now looking out to 4 5 6%. So at a time when house prices have risen dramatically, your um, borrowing capacity on your salaries been reduced substantially. So, yeah, credit in general, both retail and for commercial large-scale developments, is, is definitely getting tighter. You know, it's the first time I've heard for seven or eight years, you know, banks are worried about settlement risk two or three years out into the future. You know, will people settle if the house market falls? And, you know, I don't think it's likely, but these things are, they're actually things that are being talked about by bank boards and so forth. Now, it's been, apart from COVID, it's been the main topic of political conversation and the government has intervened in various ways this year. In March, we saw the uh, changes announced to the rules about deductibility for tax purposes for landlords. Uh, How did that affect the market? Because some people hoped this would quiet things down, but sometimes when governments intervene, there are unintended consequences. So what What's your view on that particular intervention? I mean, I, my, I thought it was a positive, you know, intervention, you know, broadly speaking. I mean, I, I'm not opposed to intervention in markets. Markets definitely don't function perfectly. And, you know, I'm of the firm belief that a, a good intervention will, will change the dynamics and the settings and there'll be winners and losers. And I don't think that's an issue necessarily. My personal view is that there was far too much I call it lazy capital or excess capital, baby boomers' wealth being poured just passively into the residential retail housing market. So I think it was a positive that if you want to invest in the housing market, there's a strong incentive to to buy a new house currently where you can still claim interest deductibility for 20 years. So I think that was a really positive move. You know, I won't you know, go into my minor gripes about it, um, <laughs> one of which is it's not people that are already in the build-to-rent sector, our buildings we can't claim. Um, interest on them anymore and for me that's you know it's it's a bit odd that you know a government wants to, to to encourage a BTR sector to build warm dry secure 10-year homes but 
the legislation as its current doesn't exist that we already exist and our balance sheets are going to be ruined and that, that's a bit, a bit annoying for me, but hey. Yeah, that build to rent sector, um, there's been a bit more talk about it this year and it's sort of the, the big missing middle in the housing market, this uh, use of institutional money, owning and operating um, apartments in particular for long terms and really aiming to build something that lasts a long time that actually is there as a rental and where the owners care <laughs> care a lot more perhaps about the tenants being there for a long time as well. Do you think that we're at some sort of tipping point on build to rent? I think it's definitely going to get established here. I mean, there's quite a, there's quite a number of larger projects in Auckland that are that are funded and actually under construction now. We've we've been doing, you know, for our for a small private company, we've we've done four built to rent buildings, and I, as I think I think Kiwi Income Property have got five hundred or so units to be constructed and on a couple of their mall sites over the next two years. I think I'm on record as before. I, I'm not sure it's a good thing overall, and I and I think if you look at it overseas, built to rent was established in Europe and London. There was no build-to-rent sector in London in 2008. Now there is, and it's huge. And, and, and the, the growth of that industry more or less is strongly correlated when money became free, when the world was awash with capital and large-scale institutions were looking. Property is a great place to bury billions of dollars. Whether it's good to end up with a significant portion of your, your population housed in corporate large-scale rental properties, is it, it, I really don't know if that's healthy. My personal view, if I... You know, had to jump one one way or the other. I'd say we're better off encouraging home ownership. You know, I think that to me is a sensible long term goal, and I think the build to rent sector was a solution. My view is it'll it, it will be really tough if interest rates do stay, you know, on their upward track for three or four years. It'll really kill that sector. It just it doesn't look attractive in an interest rate environment of you know five or six percent. But when you can, you know, borrow commercially at two and a half percent, you know, it was really attractive. So there's a range of issues there. On the other hand, it's better than, you know, a, you know, a myriad of smaller landlords owning older, colder, poorly maintained homes. So yeah, there is a large rental sector in New Zealand. What is it? You know, getting close to forty percent of housing is is rental stock. So. It should be regulated well. I think there's been a couple of good moves in, in regulation around tenure and treating tenants, you know, fearing up the balance of the relationship between a landlord and a tenant was definitely um, the tenure rules, particularly there's, there's, there's nothing respectful or about the old rules about, you know, you can pretty much get, get rid of a tenant in 90 days. You know, under any circumstances. Yeah, the other big intervention this year was the surprise bipartisan move to urgently ram through the medium density residential standards. This idea of having a uh, three three story homes on a regular section, as of right, are not able to be blocked via the Resource Management Act. It, it really shocked a lot of councils. It it's been driven through Parliament by National and Labor with a few uh, alterations. As someone who's, you know, built your entire business on medium density apartments that are designed to last close to transport routes and the centre-ish of town, how did you view this um, this intervention, which, you know, pretty hairy-chested, dramatic move? Um, what did you think? I was surprised. If, if my, my initial reaction was surprise. It was 
is that it's a very broad brush approach right across the country, you know, and we've only really got one serious city in, in Aotearoa and it's Auckland. You know, Wellington and Christchurch, yeah, they're, they're cities, but they're on a much smaller scale, really. And I, my personal view is that we will regret if that legislation gets passed as is, we will regret, we will regret it. You know, Why is that? It, it was, it's an ideologically driven approach. I don't think it's nuanced. It doesn't get to the heart of the real issues about our housing supply. Don't get me wrong. It's not easy to get a consent, and I understand the frustration across the nation about how long it takes to get the most basic consents out of council, and that's been like that for 20 years. The council's perpetually under-resourced, and it's extremely frustrating. But as it stands, we just had you know a three-year debate during the unitary plan hearings to get rid of density controls. Effectively, they brought density controls back in across the nation. So my fundamental objection, which shows, you know, how this policy that's unconsulted and made in a vacuum and then is decreed cross-party and applied, you know, there's been no professional input into it. I can tell you there won't be a single affordable house built in Auckland when you say, you know, three houses per section. You'll get large three, four-bedroom townhouses built everywhere. And not a single one of them will be less than a million dollars. Most of them will be between, you know, a million and 1.6 million. And you'll get them in, in places that are not well connected to public transport. So there's no consideration about the carbon footprint. Is there a climate crisis? Yes, I don't think the legislation really reflects that. It doesn't incentivise development where you need it. You know, you can build three houses in, you know, Drury or Red Hills or Pirata or Silverdale or Walkworth. It's got a range of issues. It's surprising. It seems like it's it's got that ideological just one fixed sort of attitude that we reached for when we put in Chicago School of Economics in the late 80s. Hey, maybe it was needed. It definitely changed the market. But my view is it's not how you build serious cities um, and we will regret it. It will cause more traffic. It will cause infrastructure problems. And it doesn't acknowledge the sophisticated, nuanced approach that we've actually got our hands on in Auckland. The unitary plan is quite progressive the city's heading in the right direction. This will head us in the wrong direction. For me, it's a parochial matter. Shit, I'd be really scared if I live somewhere outside Auckland. <laughs> so a blunt instrument. Um, let's say, you know, you were able to um, get together these two parties and say to them, yep, we obviously want more affordable, medium-density housing that's um, good to live in, it's going to last a long time, it's close to transport, it's good from a climate change point of view. What, what sort of things do you think they should have done? Well, I think the national policy statement on urban development was great. That, you know, they got off to a good start like two years ago. That was a really piece of bold policy and that was, you know, correct policy. It encouraged height within walking distance of public transport nodes, you know. You know so at least it had some relationship to, to city building and public investment. This, this broad brush latest, um, as I say, it effectively takes us back to old district plan regimes that, that say you can build three houses per section. And in, in a real set in Auckland context, that means three expensive townhouses, you know. This is really, really important. 800 square metres, the proposals are 50% coverage in three storeys. That's 1,200 square metres of allowable GFA or gross floor area. Yet you can only divide into three houses. So you're going to get three 300 square metre townhouses rather than 14 flats. 
And for that reason alone, the legislation is, is fundamentally flawed, you know, and it's 40 years old in its outlook. And, and that, the fact that, that they've missed the, you know, the density control and brought one back in by mistake shows you that the right people weren't at the table when that decision was made. And, yeah, for me it's a parochial issue. It's going to ruin Auckland's cityscape and, and, and congest our roads and encourage development where we don't want it. We want a quality, compact city. That's a broad brush that be bad for Auckland. Yeah, and uh, obviously it's it's relatively easy for the government to pass legislation, particularly when the opposition joins up. But there hasn't really been a lot of change on the infrastructure front, helping councils out, providing tools for councils and others to do what's needed. Because uh, it seems to me that housing is as much a transport issue as it is a housing issue. What do you think is sort of the missing link in there uh, from a government council point of view to get these these houses and the transport situation sorted? My response to that, Vern, is that the missing link is affordability. And I really appreciated your podcast earlier this year on a wealth tax. You know, that's the real issue is housing. We actually are building a lot of houses now. And, you know, we are getting on top of our housing deficit. But unfortunately, we haven't incentivised or encouraged affordable housing, you know, and, and it's not easy in a world where costs are escalating both. Um, so I think regulatory change around how we incentivise development, for example, I see no issue if the Crown's, you know, both local and central government, when I use the word the Crown, is prepared to invest $5 billion in a CRL, I would be hiking rates on properties within walking distance of all the train stations or could significantly for underdeveloped properties so that those properties are only attractive to people that want to develop them. We've got a lot of, you know, high-value, long-held suburban, urban land around train stations that's held in family trust, held by investors, that the value has been increased hugely by the public investment. I think the quid pro quo of that is clearly you should triple or quintuple the rates on those properties while they're still in a poor, you know, a low-use state. And then that reduces the value of those properties to what they are as development sites. And that, that's how you incentivise a market. Yeah, sure, there'll be winners and losers, and passive investors won't be happy about it. But I tell you what, the general public will be happy about it and we'll get the city we want. We'll get masses of building in places that we've invested billions of dollars that are close to parks that save literally hundreds of thousands of hours of commuting time every year. So that's so I'm not opposed to intervention. We want to broaden the discourse and, and look at all opportunities. It's it's not bad to change a market. Just to sort of wrap things up, Mark, you've been around in this place. You've obviously built an awful lot of homes and you're doing it in a way that is sort of not not the uh, traditional, you know, uh, build a house on the edge of town on a section, uh, four bedrooms, one level. You've actually uh, built lots of medium density apartments um, and things have moved on over the last two or three years. Are you feeling more confident or more hopeful now than you were, you know, two or three years ago when maybe people weren't talking about this sort of thing and maybe weren't funding the big uh, transport projects? How, how, do you, how have you felt uh, after the end of this year in terms of the future to try and build the city we want? I'm of the, you know, I speak often with an Auckland-centric view. I mean, 
I've got views on on what's happening in, in certain places around the country, but I'm actually really positive. I, I think that Tamaki Makaurau is is probably the most vibrant city in Australasia at the moment. It's got a really energetic, transformational sort of energy up here at the moment. The civic spaces that we're building are fantastic. The the social and culinary scene, you know, it's been a bit grim the last year for those in that scene, but our hospitality and food scene, Auckland is world class. There's a growing understanding that our, our landscape, you know, when you travel a little bit, every time you come back, Auckland's got an amazing landscape. It's a truly cosmopolitan city and it's got a South Pacific, you know, identity, um, which I think is really important. We don't long to be a European city. I think there's a real self-determination going on. I think there's been some super positive changes with public transport investments, um, you know, CRL, busways. The investment in cycleways, I know it's a chicken and egg thing. I'm a big fan of it. It's easy to poo-poo and bag it because you don't see many cyclists, but if you keep providing for cars, that's all you get. And I think, you know, you you don't have to look too far in Europe to see cities that have been transformed by a commitment to cycling over a couple of generations. So I, I, I'm actually positive. I think a lot of the legislation and the, the investment that's been made um, is heading in the right direction. Um, I think there's an acknowledgement that city building is a collective. Well, it's a collective undertaking. It can't be led just by uh, private wealth and... Um, so I have developed language this year that I didn't have last year. Sort of a way I sum it up is we still have a quite a colonial and permissive, exploitative approach to the use of land in this country. And I know I've been involved in a few panels rewriting the RMA. And, and the irony is it's too permissive what you can do in the rural setting in this country. And we've got poor outcomes for our rivers and farmland, our farmland being covered over with housing. And conversely, it's... I've got a microscope up my ass through the most basic, obvious, high-quality city-building urban developments. And so it, it does need re-looking at, but the problem isn't that it takes 10 years to rezone a farm. It should take 10 years to rezone a farm. And by the way, when it is rezoned, the uplift should go to the Crown, not yes. the developer, you know. Exactly. So I'm, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a big... I think we're heading in the right direction, and, hey, at least these moves are creating debate, which I think is good. I don't, I don't have all the solutions here. I've got a view on everything. But I, I, it's just, you know, it, it doesn't seem sophisticated to come out with such legislation as as, as being proposed about three houses anywhere. That, yeah. that, that legislation will involve a lot of new houses being built that are unaffordable. It's, a, it, it's like trying to pull yourself up while your shoelaces that legislation. It's, it's that poorly thought out. Interesting. Um, Mark Todd from Ockham, thank you so much for your time. Um, I wish you all the best for the summer. Um, stay safe and thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Oh, thank you, Bernard, and it's always a pleasure. Um, Merry Christmas. <laughs> well, thanks there to Mark Todd from Ockham Property. A really thoughtful uh, view on what's happening in housing and these existential issues of our age. That was this week on When the Facts Change, a podcast brought to you on the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. I'm Bernard Hickey. And remember, this is a weekly podcast, and we'd love you to get our podcast every week. 
Just hit the subscribe button and you'll get it. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiai Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.